Well, good morning, beloved. Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. I encourage you to join me in Isaiah chapter 5 as we're making our way through the book of Isaiah. We're not going uh, verse by verse necessarily, but portion by portion and trying to hit some of the highlights. This is an incredible book. This is actually the second time that I've preached in Isaiah through the book. And I remember thinking after the first time I went through it, I wish I could go back and preach it again because I think I'm starting to understand it. <laughs> and, you know, the Bible is like that, isn't it? We read it and we maybe have read it numerous times and then somehow life's circumstances, maybe it's our heart or whatever, and we come to a passage that we've read before and it just leaps off the page, grabs us by the neck and says, listen to me. And that's the way it is in all of Scripture. There are times when we read it and our mind becomes saturated with it and, and we just sort of take it in and we don't realize the transformations that it's making in our lives until someday when we truly need some word from the Lord, we open the scriptures and we're reading along in our regular process of reading, and there it is. And you think, how in the world did God know that I need that verse on this day at this particular point in my life? Well, he's God. <laughs> and he knows things. Of course, the reverse is true, isn't it? When we neglect his word... And we don't spend time in it each day reading. And, and not necessarily just studying, but even just reading and filling our mind with it. Then when the crisis moment comes and we need something from the Word of God, we find ourselves flipping through the pages and it's like a completely different language. We don't find anything, but nothing's there. And if we neglect that regular reading of the Word and coming back to those portions that we have already read and coming back to those things that we've already memorized, we find ourselves very spiritually dry. So I would encourage you, you know, maybe, maybe you've never worked through the book of Isaiah before. I would encourage you to start doing that. And maybe you've done it 10, 20, 15 times. I don't know. But let it saturate your mind and let it just fill your heart and transform your way of thinking and looking at this world. So we're in chapter 5 today, and I just want to review the fourfold purpose of the prophet. Remember the prophet, we, we think of a prophet as somebody who always tells us the future, but that was not really the case in ancient Israel. That's not the, the purpose of a prophet necessarily. It's a fourfold purpose. Number one, to confront God's people and expose their sin. Every time God sends a prophet to the nation of Israel, it's to expose their sin, to confront them and say, listen, you're drifting from God, and if the drift is not corrected, things are going to happen. Number two, he was to call them to repentance. God announces his judgment on things and he announces his warnings for a purpose and that's to call us to repentance. 
The prophet was also charged with proclaiming the consequences if the people refused to repent. And that's where the future kind of comes in a little bit. You know, that if you keep going like this, God's going to raise up a nation, thinking of Isaiah here, God's going to raise up a nation to, to come and bring judgment upon you. And in the future, your houses will be desolate and so forth. That's a little bit of the future aspect of the prophet, but it was always in connection with the people's relationship to God. The fourth thing was to proclaim God's blessings for obedience. So it's very practical. It's very right now centered. Listen, people, there's sin in your life. God's calling you to repentance. If you refuse to repent, there's going to be judgment. But if you repent, there's going to be blessing. Now that's a pretty good message, isn't it? That's a message that we would expect someone who loves us to communicate to us. Now, parents, you do it all the time to your kids. You say, son, daughter, I see something in your life that is going to end up creating a problem for you. And I want you to change. You need to change. You need to change the way you think because when you change the way you think, then your behavior changes. If you don't change your thinking and your behavior, here are the most likely consequences of what will befall you in the days ahead. Here's what's going to happen in your life. But if you repent, if you change your way of thinking, here's what's going to happen in your life. You do that all the time as parents. You're trying to teach your children how to live wisely. That's what God is doing with us. He is the perfect parent. We don't always do it perfectly as parents, do we? Sometimes in the zeal to get them to do what's right, we just crash down on them and when we're, you know, it's a little bit maybe too much. Sometimes we're a little fearful. I've never quite understood this. You know, I, I didn't want to risk losing them, so I didn't confront them. Beloved, if you don't confront them, you will lose them. The only chance you have of not losing them is to confront them. So sometimes we're a little bit hesitant as parents to, to do that. God is the perfect parent. He knows how much pressure to apply. He knows how to confront. He knows all those things. And that's what he sent his prophet to do as God's representative to confront the people, call them to repentance, warn them of judgment, and proclaim the, the blessings of obedience. And we're going to see that here in Isaiah chapter 5. And by the way, this is not just for Israel. Now Isaiah was God's prophet to God's chosen people, the Jews. And at this point in Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel has not yet fallen to the Assyrians. Isaiah's ministry begins uh, roughly around 470 B.C. It's 422, or I'm sorry, 740 B.C., and it's about 722 B.C. when the, the nation of Israel, the northern part of the kingdom, falls to Assyria. But God is consistent in how he deals with people. Proverbs 14 says that righteousness exalts a nation. Any nation. There's a nation. But sin is a reproach 
to any people. It, it, it doesn't just apply to Israel. There's application for you and me in our personal lives and for us in our national life even today. And I think we'll see that as we go along here. The chapter divides nicely into three parts. Verses 1 through 7 are a little parable. And when we read it, you may think, yeah, that sounds like something I've heard in the New Testament. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's the parable of God's provision and Israel's response. And then the second part is from verses 8 through 25. It's a description and a condemnation of Israel's behavior. And yet, within it, there is a little nugget of hope. And we'll always see that in Scripture. There may be a condemnation. There may be a portion where God really blasts His people. But there will be a little nugget of hope. Because what was the prophet's purpose? To reveal the blessings of God when repentance comes. And then finally, the third section, verses 26 through 30, the sad consequences of Israel's rebellion because they did not repent. And there was a terrible price to be paid. So let's start in chapter 5, verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. No, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared it out, its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then? When I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me you want, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will lay it waste. I shall not, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of a parable that Jesus told? It's a little different. In that parable, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talked about a, a vineyard. A fellow bought a vineyard and he planted it and he dug around it and he prepared it and everything. And on that one, he said he let it out to vine dressers, to husbands, to farmers. And he went away. And he sent representatives back expecting the harvest, expecting to get his share, his portion. After all, he was the owner. But what did the farmers do? Well, they beat one, they stoned another, they killed some. Finally, the man sent his son 
What did the farmers do? They said, oh, here's the son, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and then we'll have it all to ourselves. And Jesus asked the scribes and Pharisees who were seated there in front of him on that occasion, he says, what do you think that vineyard owner is going to do with those farmers? And I can just picture it. There they are, those Pharisees and the Sadducees, the experts in the law. They knew what was said in the law, and they leaped to their feet and they said, that man is going to take those farmers and he's going to kill them and he's going to let that farm out, that vineyard out to others who will give him the crop in their season. <laughs> and Jesus just nailed them to the floor. He said, you're right. You're the ones. And then they became enraged because Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy. I think Jesus had this very parable in mind. Now it's the same story told from a little different perspective. But look at what God does here. In this song, in this picture, this little parable, he describes his own working with Israel, with the, the northern and southern kingdom. He brought them up out of Egypt. He planted them in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. He put them there. And he had given them his laws and his commands. And he gave them the whole worship system. They knew what God required. They knew how to worship God properly. They knew that it was their own hearts that needed to be transformed. He had given them all those pictures of sacrifices for sin that had to be constantly repeated but were pointing toward an ultimate sacrifice. They had all that nailed down. They were the recipients of God's blessing. This tiny, tiny little nation of Israel, not very big among all the nations that were around them, and yet God sustained them and protected them. And especially under Kings David and Solomon, they became a world power. That tiny, tiny little nation. It's located on a land bridge that connects three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And if you've ever studied anything about military history, you know that that little land bridge, which is Palestine, or the Promised Land, or the nation of Israel, has been tromped through by almost every invading army that has ever tried to invade the world. Because you... I mean, if, if you want to connect, you, uh, let's see, I'll do it from your perspective here. Down here's Africa, over here's Asia, and up here's Europe. If you want to connect them, guess what? <laughs> you got to command that little piece of property there at the east end of the Mediterranean. But God preserved them and God protected them. By the way, it's an incredibly fruitful land. Right now, it looks like their biggest crop is rocks, but if, if, if you fertilize that land and if you get water on it, it's incredibly fruitful. They supply, the nation of Israel supplies a significant percentage of the fruit and vegetables to Europe. Tremendous. Why doesn't it produce more? Well, because God has withheld rain. <laughs> you know, God can... can change our lives with the least significant thing, can't it? 
Just blow those rain clouds somewhere else and then let nature take its course. Well, there is no force of nature. It is all God's created world and everything functions the way God created it to function. And if he wants it to rain on a place, it'll rain. And if he doesn't want it to rain on a place, it's not going to rain. So here is this vineyard that God has prepared. Notice, he says it's on a fruitful hill. He dug it up. He cleared it out. He planted the choicest vine. He built a tower. He made a wine press. He expected good grapes. He expected fruitfulness. God brought the people out of the land of Egypt. He chose them when they were just one man, Abram, who was an idolater living in the city of Ur. God chose him and drew him out and brought him to himself. And through all of those incredible stories in Genesis, which are not just stories, but they're history, through all of the events of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the experiences down in Egypt, God is preparing this vine and he brings them out into the desert and they're still rebellious and so they spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness until a generation grows up that's willing to be obedient to God. And under Joshua, God brings them into the land and he plants them there. And he drives out the other nations and they begin to grow. But in the generation after Joshua, that next generation, the generation of the judges, what happens? They turn away. God provided the perfect opportunity for them to thrive and grow. And God says there in Deuteronomy 28-29, which was read on Mount Gerizim and Ebal back and forth, if you worship God, if you're faithful to Him, you're going to be blessed in your flocks, in your fields, in your families. If you disobey God, you're going to be cursed in your flocks, in your fields, and in your families. And He set it all out before them, and they made their choice. They walked away from God. So he says, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I find done? What more could have been done? And now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. God says I'm going to take away its hedge. God was their protection. God was their wall. He was their hedge. He was the one that kept all the other nations at bay. I'm going to take away their hedge and it shall be burned. It's going to be consumed. And the nations consumed it. You see, the book of Judges is just a little foretaste of what God was going to do. The, the Midianites and the Amorites and the others that came in and they oppressed Israel for a while, and then Israel repented, and God relented, and they disobeyed again, and on it goes. That's just a little foretaste. Because when the Assyrians came, 722 B.C., and they carried the northern kingdom into captivity, well, that was the end of the northern kingdom. That was it. Now, in those intervening years after the kingdom divided, there were lots of people, I say a lot, there were numbers of people 
from the north who kind of trickled down to the south. So all, really all, 12 tribes were represented there in Judah, but essentially the vast majority of the, the tribes, the 10 tribes of Israel, they were wiped out. When, not only when, when the Assyrians came in, not only were people killed, but the survivors were deported throughout the Assyrian Empire, and non-Israelites were brought in to populate the land. That's one of the things that the Assyrian kings did. When they conquered you, they, they really decimated the population, and then what little bit was left was spread out so that no feelings of renewed nationalism or anything like that could, could begin to take root. That's what they did in Israel, in the north. God devastated them. You say, God devastated them? That's what he says, isn't it? I mean, the Assyrians were God's instrument, but the Assyrians could have done nothing to Israel if God had not permitted them to do so. And so God says, I'm going to take away my hedge. I'm going to remove all the hindrances to anybody coming in here and conquering these people. He says, I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Look at verse 6. I will lay it waste. Assyria was just God's instrument of judgment. God was the one wielding the Assyrian army. He's the Lord of hosts, right? The Lord of armies. He's the Lord of heaven's armies. He's the Lord of Earth's armies, too. No army does anything apart from God's permission. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and that's what happened. Notice, it gets really powerful here in Hebrew. We don't see it so well in English. It doesn't translate well. Verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. It's a little play on words there, justice and oppression. Mishpat and mispah. Close. Remember, Hebrew poetry is a little bit different than ours. And, and, and the contrast, there's supposed to be judgment. There's supposed to be justice. But what do we have? Oppression. They're two polar opposites. I looked for what I expected. I looked for the right thing. And what was there? The wrong thing. The opposite of what I wanted. It goes on. For righteousness. But behold, a crime. And again, the word righteousness and cry sound very similar. And the, the, the concept, I looked for this and I found its opposite. I looked for what was right and true and instead there was just shrieking and crying out. Why? Because the righteousness, because truth had been removed. Are you seeing any of that in our land today? Are you seeing any of these kinds of things happening in our world? 
He launches off now into the second portion. It's a description and condemnation of Israel's behavior. There's six woes that are here. The word woe is the word oi. It, it's kind of like when you punch somebody in the stomach and they go, Ugh! It's a cry out. It's a groan. It's a, it's, it's a cry of agony. It's the opposite, in, in our English words, woe and wheel, it's the opposite of wheel, W-E-E-L. It's, it's, or excuse me, W-E-A-L. It, it's it's a, a word of blessing, a word of joy, a word of happiness. A woe and a wheel are complete opposites. This is focusing on that kick in the gut, that cry, that squeal of agony and sorrow and misery. He says, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field, till there's no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyards shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one people. Here we have the covetous. These folks want to keep buying up, in this instance, in this illustration, they keep wanting to buy up property, buy up farms, more and more. I'll get that house, I'll get that land, I'll get that field, I'll get this, I'll get that. And, and they've got a strategy, they want to buy everything so that it connects, so that they can drive everybody out that they don't want around them, so they can live right there in the center, fat, dumb, and happy. You know, they, they, they are the king of their own little spot. And God says, you're doing this, but many houses shall be desolate, those great and beautiful ones. All those beautiful mansions, those great you know, estates that you're trying to get for yourselves so that you can live there in prosperity while everybody else is out there suffering or whatever, they've been driven away. Those houses of prosperity, those estates of prosperity are going to be destroyed. You know, I look around today, I see corporations, I see individuals, you know, they think big and big and big and big is always better, and, and it just keeps, and, and it, you remember, I guess it was back in 2008 when the banks began to collapse and so forth, there was a little phrase that came out, too big to fail. Do you remember that? Some of you do. Beloved, nothing is too big to fail. When, when a people sets themselves up in arrogance against God, when they think they can secure their own security and, and future and blessing and benefit, they're not too big to fail. They might get really prosperous. They might, you know, be like some of the, I don't know, are they billionaires, trillionaires, quadrillionaires? What, what number do we use? Yeah. They're not too big to fail. God can bring them down in an instant. Because God is the one who is in control. He may allow sin to run for a season, but God is still in control. And the moral word of God still applies today as much as it ever did. Ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. But ten acres of grapes is a lot, isn't it? 
you know how much a bath is? About 10 and a half gallons. I'm not sure what the yield ratio is on that. Let's see, 10 acres of grapes, and you get about 10 and a half gallons of wine from that? You're not going to make any money that way, are you? How about this? A homer of seed show you one ephah. It's about a 10 to 1 ratio. If, if you, you know, if you're a farmer and you go out and you plant 10 bushels of wheat, you don't expect to get just 10 bushels back, do you? You expect thousands of bushels. I mean, you expect truckloads of wheat from what you've put into the ground. But suppose you went out and you, you sowed that 10 bushels of wheat seed and you got back about 10 gallons worth of wheat. Is your farm going to last? <coughs> nope. You're going to go bankrupt in a hurry. God can bring all this down in a moment. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute and wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of His hands. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, that's the, the place of the dead, the grave. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant shall descend into it, into death. People shall be brought down, each man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones Strangers shall eat. Hmm. Wow, what's this all about? Well, here we have the, the partiers. This is the group that wants to have fun. Is that one of the standards of life in our world today? To have fun. I just want to have fun. I just want to have a good time. And, and boy, they've got it. I mean, they've got wine, women, and song. They're having parties all the time. It's just a wonderful thing that's going on here. They're enjoying every pleasure and indulgence that they can possibly imagine. And they're living the high life. They're having fun. But it doesn't benefit them. In fact, it stupefies them. They have no knowledge. That's why they're going into captivity. It says they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished. The multitude dried up with thirst. They've, they've got all this wine there and they're thirsty. They've got all this food there and they're hungry. They've got all this fun going on and they're not happy. They're not enjoying it. And that's why it has to keep growing. You know, there's a thing called the law of diminishing returns. The more you have of something, the more of it you want. Because you're never satisfied with what you have in your hand. It's never enough. Somebody always has a better iPad. 
Somebody always has a better fitness watch. Somebody always has a nicer car. Somebody always has a bigger house. And you want that. That's the American dream, isn't it? I mean, this stuff has been woven into our very cultural fabric. And we suck this stuff down like it is water. Like it nourishes us. But it doesn't. And we pursue these things. We've got to have one more. We've got to have two more. We've got a black one. Now we need a red one and a green one and an orange one. And we just keep going and going and going. And we think that it's fun and it's not. We think it'll bring us joy and it doesn't. It leaves us parched and dry. Verse 16 is interesting. Look at it with me. The Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Hmm. Do you know that the judgment God brings upon the sinful condition of mankind points out His holiness and His justice and His righteousness? It's, it's like if we were in a dark cave. How many of you have ever been in on a cave tour? You know, and you go down in the caves and they show you the stalactites and the stalagmites. Inevitably, at least last time I was there, what they do at some point is they just turn off the lights. They, usually they say, now hold, hold hands or something, you know, and, and they turn off the light. Have you ever been in a blacker place? I, I mean, that is darkness. And aren't you so thankful when the light comes back on? I mean, you're just standing, and they only leave it off for a couple of seconds. And you just kind of begin to feel that oppressive darkness. And you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And then the light comes back on. It's like it is between evil and God's righteousness. Beloved, it's not until God brings judgment against evil that we will really comprehend how dark, how wicked, how horrible and wretched evil really is. Because you see, all of us have a little bit of that in us. We're still sinners, aren't we? I mean, even though we've been saved by grace, do we not still struggle with that old sin nature? Are there not still wrong desires in our hearts? Do we not still, in some ways, prefer darkness to light? But one of these days, as God brings His judgment... He is going to be vindicated. And everything that He has said in His Word that should be avoided will be exposed and we will understand how wicked and evil and perverse all that stuff really was. We will see how wretched we have been. God will be declared glorious. God will be declared righteous and holy because of that contrast. Verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope, that say, Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Boy, is this ever arrogant. <laughs> ah! 
God's going to do something? Come on, let him do it. Let's see what God's going to do. If God's going to come back, let him come back now. If God's going to bring judgment, let him bring judgment now. Let's see if God can conquer us. That's the idea behind these verses. If God's going to do something, let's see it. Oh, beloved. To challenge God in such a way as to sign your own death warrant. Because God doesn't take that idly. He doesn't take that lightly. He takes that as a very serious challenge. And it is His grace, it is His mercy that does not respond immediately to such a challenge. You see, that's, that's the outcome of what happens as we turn from God. We begin to think of ourselves. We begin to think only of our fun. We begin to challenge God. And then look what happens. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here is a complete perversion of truth. Here is a society that has turned everything upside down. They have said what is morally bad and reprehensible is actually good. And what is morally good and righteous is actually bad. Beloved, do you see the current conditions of our country? Let me give you three illustrations. Number one, we have declared murder to be a good thing. You say, oh, Pastor Roger, no, surely. Yes, we have. Because we've been aborting babies for years. And we've been euthanizing the old, the infirm, the handicapped. We have what they call it, death with dignity laws, particularly in Oregon and other places. We've said that murder is a good thing. What does God say about murder? He says, you shall not murder. Murder is a horrible thing in God's eyes. That's just one example. Here's another one. Concerning marriage. We've started out saying, ah, we'll just live together. We'll just shack up. We'll just live together. And now, we say marriage, ah, it can be two men, two women. It can be any combination of anything you want it to be. What did God say about marriage? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, part of that included the creation of Adam and Eve. Created Adam he made a helper that was suitable for him. They became husband and wife. That was God's plan and purpose. And now we have said anything goes or nothing goes. You just live together. That's the second example. Here's the third one. Now we are attacking and changing 
the very essence of what it means to be a human being. We are saying that, oh, I don't know, how many genders are there? hundred and some? I don't know what the last count is. And, and you can decide what you want to be, and, and, and it might change. I mean, today you might feel like a male, and tomorrow you might feel like, feel like a female, and the day after that you might feel like an androgynous person. They have no sex, you know, male or female, whatever. And, and on it goes. And we're codifying this into our laws. Beloved, are we putting evil for good? Are we putting darkness for light? Are we putting bitter for sweet? Are we ready to be judged by Almighty God? These are the things that Israel did. And God brought judgment. God is consistent with how He deals with nations. Because remember, while the ceremonial, the worship laws, were specific to Israel, the moral law was given for the blessing of all mankind. And when we violate that moral law, we put ourselves right square in line for God's judgment. Dare we keep going? Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 1. It says they didn't want to retain the knowledge of God. They willfully suppressed what they knew about Him. They declared themselves to be wise and served the creature rather than the Creator. And so what happens? God gives them over. And the last one in the series of three, it says in verse 28, He gives them over to a depraved mind. It is a mind that is so twisted, so distorted, they cannot think straight anymore. They would not recognize truth if it jumped up and bit them on the nose. They, they just, they're oblivious to it. They do not see it. You say, how can it happen? By turning away from God. By turning away from God. Verse 22. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the unrighteous man. Let me pause there just a minute. I don't think the emphasis is on the drinking part. I think the emphasis is in, is in verse 23. The drinking part is how they get, you know what alcohol is, right? It is a suppressant to the central nervous system. The part that it suppresses the most in our brain is that part of our brain which controls our inhibitions. You know, you and I, we, we have a brain that God has designed for us and given to us, and it's an incredible blessing, and nobody's really quite figured out how that works yet. But there is a part of that brain that controls our inhibitions. It just keeps us from doing what we shouldn't do. 
what we know instinctively, I don't know, maybe it's our conscience. I'm not sure I can describe it in technical medical terminology, but it controls our willingness to rebel against God. And one of the things that alcohol does is it suppresses that. I have no idea why anyone who is a Christian, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who has a renewed mind, would want to use alcohol, even socially, and risk suppressing that God-given gift of self-control and doing what is wrong in God's eyes. Do I make myself clear? Do I make the Word of God clear? Should not be a part of our lives. Because what does it lead to? It leads to justifying the wicked for a bribe, taking away justice. We don't have any inhibitions anymore. We'll just do whatever we want to do. And isn't it interesting that when people go down that road, they have to keep suppressing that mind. They have to keep suppressing those inhibitions. The way God designed us, truth always wants to come up to the surface. It always wants to rise. And we always have to keep pushing it down and pushing it down and pushing it down. And what a rebellion that is against our creator. Therefore, verse 24, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust. Boy, from the root to the fruit, <laughs> from the root to the blossom, the whole thing of that lifestyle is going to be lost and destroyed. Because they have rejected the law, the law of the Lord of hosts. Oh, the Lord of armies. Ah, we mentioned that earlier, didn't we? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the street. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. That ought to terrify us. Because when God chooses to bring judgment, He brings judgment and He brings it thoroughly, and He doesn't quit until it's done. No halfway punishment from God. And notice, he is bringing this correction, he is bringing this judgment on his own people. Peter tells us that judgment begins first at the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who have rejected him? By the way, that little phrase, his anger is not turned away and his hand is still outstretched, is repeated. It occurs five times here in chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. Isaiah is not enjoying this message, and neither am I. God hammers us if we refuse to listen. But what's the solution? Listen. Repent. 
You see, that's the very message that John the Baptist brought. It's the very message Jesus preached. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. What does the word repent mean? The word repent means to change your thinking. Change your thinking. Change what's deeply inside of you that is embedded in your very soul. Your thinking process. Change that thinking process. Stop looking at this world through the glasses of this world. Look at this world through the Word of God and see this world for what it really, truly is. Turn to God. Now, something else is included in repentance. That turning to God. You see, when my thinking changes about something, my behavior will change also. If I'm going in that direction, and I think it's a good direction to go, but in reality it's not, and I change my way of thinking, and I begin to realize, you know, that's not a good direction, am I going to keep going in that direction? No, I'm going to turn around and go the other way. The change of thinking, the change of heart, the change of mind, always manifests itself in changed behavior. And that's what God is calling His people to. Whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's what He's calling His church to in the New Testament because, beloved, the church has failed just exactly as Israel has failed. God wanted that fruitful vine that He planted to be close to Him, to draw their sustenance, their very life from Him. He wanted them to bring forth fruit that would bring Him glory and that would bring joy to His people. He wanted all those things, but the nation of Israel refused. God wants His church to be vitally connected to Him, to draw their sustenance, their nourishment from Him, to be delighted in Him and in Him alone and to produce fruit. But you look across this nation, you look across this world, at the church, the professing church, and it's apostate for the most part. They have a form of godliness. Paul warns Timothy about it. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it was the religious crowd that when Jesus told his parable, his side of the story of the vineyard here, they were the ones that jumped up and said, oh, those wicked people, God's going to... They didn't say God, they said that landowner's going to bring judgment on them. They got it right, but they didn't see that it applied to them. Beloved, sometimes the church proclaims the truth, but they don't realize that it applies to them. There's going to be a harvest in this vineyard someday. It's going to be a harvest that will be a disaster for those that have not heeded the warning. We're not going to finish the chapter today. You can read it this afternoon. It's a picture of first Assyria and then Babylon coming first to Israel and then to Judah and bringing God's judgment upon them. Beloved, the church needs to wake up in this nation. 
The church needs to start walking close to God. The church needs to repent. The church needs to be demonstrating that fruit of righteousness, peace and joy and goodness and self-control and all of those things. The fruit of the Spirit that fills God's people needs to be getting out so that a watching world can see what God can do in the life of those who turn to Him. Is there anything that you and I need to repent of today? Is there any apostasy that has creeped into our lives? Is, is there any sin that we need to deal with? Beloved, and I say this as much to myself as to anybody else hearing my voice. Beloved, let us humble ourselves before Almighty God. Let us repent. Let us turn to Him. As the writer of Hebrews says, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run that race that God has set before us. A race of holiness and righteousness, justice and truth. A race that ends at the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word cuts deeply and it challenges our thinking it challenges our living it challenges our priorities it challenges our very soul Father I pray for all of us here this morning that we would allow your spirit to search our hearts and try us and to know our thoughts and to see if there is any wicked way in us oh Lord we want to live a godly life. We live in a world that's so turned against you. And Father, we find that warfare even in our own hearts and in our own minds. There are still parts of this world that are so attractive to us. Oh God, continue working in us and and break us from those attractions. Remove them from us. May your spirit continue that good work that you have begun in us, that we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be the salt and the light that you want us to be. Father, please, work in the hearts of your people this day. We ask in Jesus' precious name.